So today's Bible reading is from Genesis chapter 4, starting at verse 1 through to 16. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favour. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, "'Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast?' If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Thanks for reading, Ellie. Um, If you didn't get a leaflet on your way in. There are still some out on the hall table. Um, please go and grab one. It's got my phone number on the front, as Pete mentioned, so that you can SMS a question through to me. It's also got a folded up piece of paper on the inside with Genesis 4 to 11, nearly the whole of Genesis 4 to 11. The, a bit of chapter 10 is not in here, but Genesis 4 to 11 printed out so that you can um, read the text as we're working our way through. Um, you might like to bring this back over the coming few weeks as we keep moving our way through these early chapters in Genesis. We're not using the shared Bibles at the moment due to our COVID uh, restrictions, so having um, the Bible in front of you I hope is helpful for you as we work our way through this passage this morning. Well, Back in 1939, a man called Noel Langley put the final touches on the script of The Wizard of Oz. I don't know if you've watched that movie. I don't think I've ever actually watched The Wizard of Oz, but I know this much about it. There's a yellow brick road, there's a lion, a tin man, and Dorothy has bright red shoes. Uh, That's almost enough for me. But there's also one thing that I do know about that movie. It has a line in it that's become part of our everyday speech. I think it's right at the start of the movie. Dorothy turns to her dog Toto and says, Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. It's a phrase that you might have used. We're not in Kansas anymore. Obviously, that means we're in an unfamiliar place, a strange place. 
I think it's where we find ourselves when we get to the start of Genesis chapter 4, in a new place, outside of the garden. The things are different here in Genesis chapter 4. We're no longer in Kansas. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be working our way through Genesis chapter 4 to 11. And, and here's what I want you to be thinking and feeling more. I can't really make you feel something, but I'd love you to be feeling these things. As you read these chapters, I hope you'll be wishing that Adam and Eve were back in the garden. That they were back where things were as they should be. See, chapters 4 to 11 of Genesis, it tells us what life is like on this side of the garden wall. They tell us what life is like after the fall. Gardening just got a lot harder. Childbirth just got painful. But the big focus of chapters 4 to 11 is the behavior and the attitude of the human heart. On this side of the garden wall, some of the shine has come off the created world. It's no longer the paradise that the garden was. What we see most clearly, I think, is that humans are struck down by sin. That means that some of what we're going to look at over the next few weeks is a bit bleak. And it's supposed to be that way because the text, I think, is designed to make us long to be back in the garden. Or or at least the text is designed to make us long for a solution to the problem of the human heart. I wonder if you know what it feels like to be in an unfamiliar place. In 2012, Meredith and I moved to Melbourne and we did what we thought all Melburnians did. On the very first morning we arrived, we got up early and we went to the local coffee shop. And we stepped in through the door of that coffee shop and bang, we felt like we were in a different world. The staff were dressed in strange clothes. The men had long beards and plaid shirts that they buttoned right up to the neck. They looked almost a bit like Jack, actually. But <laughs> the women wore overalls or dresses and Doc Martin boots and they were all tattooed and it just looked so different. I didn't say this, but I could have turned to Miff and said, we're not in Kansas anymore. That's just like Adam and Eve at the start of chapter 4. See, up until this point, they'd been in the garden. And back in the garden, God had saw all that he had made and he said it was very good. Despite being naked in the garden, Adam and Eve felt no shame. It says that in the garden, the trees were pleasing to the eye and good to eat. God walked in the cool of the day and he spoke with Adam and Eve and it was paradise. It was as God intended. But here at the start of chapter 4, Adam and Eve are now on the wrong side of the garden wall. If you look in your Bibles, if you've got them there, just back at chapter 3, I don't have it on your printout, sorry, but they've just disobeyed God and eaten from the tree about which God commanded you must not eat from it. And in verse 24, the very end of chapter 3, says this, After he, that's God, drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. They're on the wrong side of the garden wall. And you might wonder, what are these early chapters in Genesis? What, are, what do they have to do with us today, living in Adelaide in 2020? They're from a different time, a bygone era. And in one sense, that's true. These words were written a long time ago. I want you to see today that these words are still part of our creation story, our story. 
because they seek to explain why we are like what we are. As we read chapter 4, I want you to remember that just like Cain and Abel are on the wrong side of the garden wall, so are we. These chapters speak about what life is like in a fallen world, in a corrupt world. If you've got your leaflet there, you'll see the outline of what I want to talk about today. But, but really, there's just two big things that I want you to walk away with today. Here's the first thing. I want you to see the sinfulness of us as people. This idea just comes up time and time again in chapters 4 through to 11. Sin crept into the garden. But on this side of the wall, it runs rampant. Sin is everywhere. The second thing I want you to see today as we work our way through this passage is the incredible grace of God. Two big things, humanity's sinfulness and the incredible grace of God. So let's take a look at the text together. Um, you do have this in your printout. We want to look at the, I'm going to start by reading to you the second half of verse 2 of chapter 4. By this stage, Adam and Eve had given birth to Cain and his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. There's a lot that's not said in this passage, isn't there? What it does say is that Cain kept flocks, maybe he kept sheep or goats, the text doesn't say. And Cain, on the other hand, he grew things. It says one day Cain brings to God some fruits of the soil as an offering for the Lord. I want to show you, I've got some of those, some fruits of the soil here this morning. Here they are, a bag of potatoes. Maybe this is what Cain brought to the Lord, like a great, healthy looking potato. Abel brings something else to God. He brings fat portions from one of the firstborn of his flock. So here we go. A leg of lamb, right? I tried to choose one that had a nice bit of fat on it. Which would you choose? Potatoes or the lamb? Fruits of the soil or fat portions from some of the firstborn of the flock? Here's what it says in verse 4. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Why? I think that's the question that most of us want to know when we read this passage. Why? Why does God choose one and not the other? Does it mean that God's like the six-year-old in my family? Very happy at dinner time to consume the meat. But put a vegetable, especially a green one, in front of him and just turns up his nose. Is it that God just prefers shepherds to gardeners? Why does God choose one and not the other? Is this just another reminder that God's mind is inscrutable and his preference for Abel's offering just reflects that divine mystery of election that we've been talking about recently as a church? The text doesn't tell us, does it? We might probe a little further and look for clues in the text and try and read between the lines. And if we do that, then perhaps the most likely answer that we will come up with is that maybe there's something to do in which the attitude of the offering is given here. Now, Tim Keller points out that there really are only two motivators as to why you would give an offering. 
Either you're acting in response to God's goodness, you're saying thank you to God, or you're trying to obligate God to secure something from God. I'll give you this bag of potatoes, God, but you better give me some rain for the next season. Or I'll give you this leg of lamb, but you better protect me from my enemies. Perhaps Cain was trying to obligate God while Abel just makes his offering in faith. And the letter to the Hebrews does lend some support to that idea. But here's my view, because the text doesn't tell us why God favours one and not the other, we just can't be sure. And because the text doesn't tell us, it can't be the big thing that the writer wants us to know. As I've been working my way through Genesis and reading some different commentaries, one line in one of the commentaries stands out and it says something like this, the best interpretation of Genesis is not the one that fills the gaps most convincingly, but rather the one that explains the text that we have. So today I want us to get past this why question. Because then I think we'll see that the main concern of the text is, is not to do with the offering, but how Cain responds in the situation. I think the text is more concerned with Cain's heart and how he responds to disappointment than it is to distinguish between the offerings themselves. So I want to put away these potential offerings so that they're not on the table, so that we can move on to the next section of the text. So if you've got your your passage there, let me read to you from verses 6 and 7. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. God asks Cain a, a question here. Is that because God's not sure of the answer? Is that why God asks questions of people in the Bible? Of course not, right? God knows everything already. He's not asking a question for the question's sake. He's asking a question because he wants Cain to look at his heart, to peer into himself. God could have said to Cain, couldn't he? It's not your job to question me. I'm God. You're just part of the created order. I'll choose to be pleased with what I'm choose to be pleased with. It's none of your business. I made you. But instead, God speaks gently to Cain. He says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? It's sort of like Cain's come to a fork in the road. Will he turn and do what is right? Or will he succumb? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. The way that verse 7 is written, it's almost as if sin is a, is a, is a demon crouching at the door, like sin is personified, ready to jump up and ensnare its victim. It's presented like a caged animal or a tiger, just ready to spring up and pounce. I want you to see that this is what life is like, this side of the garden wall. What life is like, this side of the fall. Sin is crouching at our door too. Sometimes sins aren't so easy to see, are they? Maybe, as Tim Keller says, that's because they're crouching down low and we kind of, our gaze doesn't see them. 
I wonder if there's some sins in your life that you're just kind of overlooking. Maybe we see our greed as good financial planning or our worry and our anxiety, not, not as not trusting in God, but rather just as being organized. Or we, we might see discontentment not as a sin, but as a motivator to try and improve ourselves. Outside of the garden, sin is crouching at the door and it desires to have us. Will it rule over you? When you get to the fork in the road, what do you do? During our school holidays, we went away as a family. We had a really terrific time on holiday. And one morning while we were on holiday, Meredith went out for a run and I stayed back with the kids. I thought it was her quiet time to go for a run. My job was to stay home and look after the kids. And we were just having one of those lazy mornings as you do on holidays. We were eating breakfast, white bread, honey, not the normal thing that we do at home. The kids were doing craft. The boys were watching some boats go past out the window. It was just one of those lazy, relaxed mornings. And a bit later on in that morning, I got a phone call from Miff saying, the beach is amazing. should bring the kids down. Oh, sounds like a good idea. Hung up the phone. But I was in no rush whatsoever to bring the kids down to the beach. I thought we'd finish eating honey toast. They'd watch a few more things on the TV. We'd watch a few more boats go past. And I slipped my, kind of threw my phone down somewhere and didn't take much more notice of it. About 45 minutes later, I saw my phone and there was about, I don't know, 10 text messages, voicemails. Where are you? Started off. Miff was waiting at the beach. She thought, I thought, that I was going to bring the kids down straight away. She was getting more frustrated with her text messages and I thought, this is not fair. I didn't know. Fork in the road. How do I respond to this situation? There's two ways to do it really, aren't there? I should have listened better. I should have communicated. But where we are now, I could get indignant and angry, self-righteous. You didn't communicate properly. You could let it ruin the morning by being a sulk and by letting it rub off in the kids. What I should have done is just apologised, packed the kids into the car, headed down to the beach, smiled at Miff, said sorry for the misunderstanding, and got on with the rest of the day. It's so easy, isn't it, though, for frustration and resentment and anger to set in. And before you know it, what should have been a great day enjoying the beach and a great day outside just becomes a day that's messed up with anger and frustration. Kids feel the tension. They start acting out. None of us are having a good time anymore. There's a fork in the road, decision to be made. But this is what life outside of the garden is like. This is what life after the fall is like. Sin is crouching at our door and it desires to have us. And the consequences can be terrible. It's horrendous for Cain and for Abel. A sacrifice, an offering is rejected for a reason we don't really know. And that results in Cain murdering his brother. This is life outside of the garden. Now, you, if you're good at maths, you'll know that two dots on a chart make a pretty weak trend line, don't they? But there's no doubting, is there, the direction of how things are going here. Sin is gaining a foothold in God's world. Adam and Eve introduced it to humanity in the garden, Cain to the family. Next week we'll see just how far sin spreads and how quickly it permeates throughout the world. We've seen on this side of the garden that sin is crouching at the door. It's just always there. 
But for now, I want to keep moving through the passage because I want us to see the next big thing in the passage. I want us to see the grace of God. And the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Now I'm going to encourage you to do a dangerous thing. That is, just for a moment, imagine that you are God in this circumstance. What would you do with Cain? Cain's just taken his brother's life and he seems at this point pretty unrepentant. Am I my brother's keeper? He says to God. And Abel's blood is crying out from the ground. What do you think the words that it was crying are? I reckon they're words of justice and vengeance and retribution. And and surely God, he'd be thinking things like an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth and a life for a life. But that's not what happens, is it? Sure, we see some judgment on Cain. We see a deepening of the curses that start in chapter 3. If you haven't read those before, I'd encourage you to go back and read chapter 3 and 1 and 2 of Genesis as well. In chapter 3, the ground is cursed by God so that it won't yield its crops without hard work and without toil. But in chapter 4 for Cain, remember he's a farmer. He's cursed so that no matter how much sweat and how much toil he puts into the ground, it will never yield its crops for him. And so he's forced to be a wanderer. That scares him. Whoever finds me will kill me, he says in verse 15. And here's how God responds. I want you to see God's grace in verse 15. The Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. I think that's extraordinary. Was God angry at what Cain had done? Or or he must have been because he's a God of justice. But he doesn't strike down Cain and kill him. Instead, he marks him so that he won't be killed. I think there's a theme here that we'll see in weeks to come. Salvation comes through judgment. John Moulton in his commentary says this though, already at this point we see a God who holds justice in his right hand and mercy in his left. The story we've been working our way through today is a story that tells us what life is like on this side of the garden wall. What life is like after the fall. We live in a world where sin is crouching at our door And yet at the same time, we live in a world where our God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love. Now you might wonder then, where does this passage leave us today? Well, over the coming weeks, we'll see humanity succumbing to the sin crouching at the door. The sin moves from Adam and Eve to Cain and and soon it just infects the whole of humanity. This is what life is like after the fall. This is what life is like On the wrong side of the garden wall, sin just spreads everywhere. And I think Genesis 4 to 11, it should have us longing to be back in the garden. Designed to make us long for a solution to sin that has just enveloped all of humanity. Chapter 4 should leave us asking one of the questions that God asks of Cain. 
Will you be accepted? Sin rampant. Will you be accepted by God? Today, we live on the same side of the garden wall to Cain and Abel, don't we? We're not in the garden on the same side as them. But we do live on a different side of the cross. Our viewpoint is different. We see the same world, the world that was inhabited by Cain and Abel, but we see it from a different vantage point. Because today we know that God has provided a solution to sin in the world. Today we're able to see that we can be accepted by God, not because we bring an offering like Abel's, but because God himself has offered his son. What I think is one of the most startling lines in this passage is in verse 10, where God speaks to Cain and he says, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. The cries must be cries of vengeance and justice and retribution, mustn't they? That's what sin deserves. That's what murdered people's blood cries out. That's what the aftermath of fraud or adultery or dishonesty or anger, that's what those things cry out. How can a just God listen to these cries and yet yet still act with grace and mercy? Well, the book of Hebrews, it, it picks up on this idea of Abel's blood that was spilt and the words that it says and it tells us that the spilt blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I think what that means is that Abel's blood cries out to God for justice and vengeance and retribution but Jesus' blood cries out grace and mercy. How does it do that? Well, Jesus was the perfect Abel. He He offered the perfect sacrifice. He offered his own life and he was innocent when he did that. His blood was spilt for our sinfulness. And that enables a just God to be gracious and merciful to us as people. Jesus has paid for Abel's blood and he's also covered our sins. And so today we, we have great confidence that we can be and will be accepted by God even if we get to that fork in the road and sin gets the better of us. The current vantage point, this side of the cross, gives us confidence of that. But we also have hope in that we have the gift of the Spirit. Today, we don't have hearts of stone. They've been replaced with hearts that are perceptive to God and to his will. So I think we have more ammunition, so to speak, when we find ourselves in the same spot as Cain. At the fork in the road, we have more opportunity to choose to do the right thing. The Spirit's at work in us, growing us to be more like Jesus. And I want to encourage you to walk with him, to seek to be more like him. To ask that God would be at work in our hearts, helping us to choose to do what is right. And yet despite all that, we still live on the wrong side of the garden wall. We're still human, we're still fleshy, sin is still crouching at our door. I've proven that to myself on my last holiday, but I don't need to go back that far either. Sin permeates our world. 
We're still fleshy. We still live in a broken and corrupt world. In Galatians 5, we read, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other. So that you are not to do whatever you want. So like Cain, we all too often come to that fork in the road, that decision-making point, and we find ourselves consumed by sin. And when that happens, I want you to remember the grace and the mercy of our God and to fall back on him. I know a few of you have been working as a community group through Jerry Bridges' book, Respectable Sins. I've read a little bit of that book. And in that, he tells the story of of John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. You may already know this. He was a slave trader. In fact, he was a captain of one of the ships, slave trading ships. Later in his life, he gave himself to Jesus and he became horrified as he looked back on his past life. At the end of his life, he spoke to a friend and he said this, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. These are the two things that our passage shows us today. Life on this side of the garden wall is a life where sin is crouching at our doors. It's powerful and it's consuming. And yet we have a God who's more powerful still. Now this passage, it leaves me yearning a time when I'll be able to live out what I want to be right now. Where the spirit and flesh battle is over. It leaves me yearning to get back to a time like I was on the other side of the wall. To get back to a place where sin is not crouching at our door. I want to suggest that in a way the rest of the story of the Bible. Remember we're right at the start here in chapter 4 of Genesis. The rest of the story of the Bible is really about how God will do that. How he'll take us back to the garden. See, he's promised to remake this world and to remake us as a new creation, perfected. He started that work, he started that journey on the cross. He'll finish it one day when Jesus returns and the heavens and the earth are remade. As I look at life on this side of the garden wall, this side of the fall, I've been praying this week, that God's kingdom would come, that he'd bring about those changes in our world. And I'm going to pray for us now using the words of the Lord's Prayer because it prays those things exactly and it also asks for the forgiveness of sin. I'm going to pray for us now. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen.